it's important to recognize when you pool your money somewhere with other people's money for use by an institution, it is really important that you understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, what backs that institution, and what risks, if any, your money have, has, have, whatever. Oh, um, man, that's a tense question you've got there. I, yeah, lots of tenses in that one. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else filled all up with our English dead. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to an exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach. I, you don't sound very excited. No, I, I was trying to give my serious gravitas voice that I'm mm. about to make a very serious announcement. You are? About, yeah. You know, uh, taxes being what they are, the way Politics is polarized. All these things, at the end of the day, it's night. There. That was my serious statement. <clears throat> yeah, it was. You got it. It was an accurate and complete statement. I'm yes, proud of yes. you. Yes, I, I, I want to make sure that everybody understands that was 100% accurate and complete. Yes. <clears throat> yes. At the end of the day, it's always night. Yes. Um, so, uh, the end of last hour, we sort of touched on something interesting uh, and we have another question from Marty. Uh, he said, unemployment, pandemic, supply and demand. That's the subject. 3.5 or something low. It's 3.4 as of uh, Thursday. 3.4% is the unemployment rate. Record low uh, since, what, the 1960s? We haven't seen this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he and says, was, go ahead. It, unemployment in the 1960s was a very different thing than it yeah. is today because the workforce, the total workforce, the people who were working if everybody who wanted to work was working, was less than half of the working age population back in the 50s and 60s. Because today it's most like 64%. Women, right. Most women weren't employed with a paycheck. They, may, they were still working. They just were working in a place that didn't get an employer giving them money. Uh, so, yeah, the workforce is very different today. So, in essence, we've never been this fully employed. And your question is, what about people not coming back to work and people retiring early and people not wanting to work? Does this askew the unemployment numbers? Is the supply chain COVID and the rise of fuel mostly causing majority of inflation or COVID giveaways still in the system and causing more money without warning? Okay, so let me say that at the beginning, there's a, a, a good story that came out in the Washington Post. And I know that sounds almost a little bit like an oxymoron to say a good story in the Washington Post particularly when you're talking finance, but it's actually pretty good. And it says most of the country's missing workers are back, propelling the economy. Um, but on the, at the Labor Department, they have these really great statistics uh, and they feed them out. So first off, let me say we, we were testing some AI this week in the office. We were looking at Google's Bard and, and, and Bing's chat GPT and asking it finance questions. And chat GPT, it's probably won't take it long to learn if they focus on it, but it really doesn't understand unemployment. It doesn't understand the Federal Reserve. It doesn't understand that stuff at all. It was giving me answers that were just blatantly wrong all over the place. 
when you ask it about programming stuff, it actually writes programs for you. It doesn't understand finance yet. Google's Bard's not so good at writing programs, but I was asking it questions about unemployment and things, and it was coming up with good answers and the ability for me to double check it, at least at the collegiate level, not at the grad student level. It'll get there. So the basis of your question is, what's going on? We've got this low unemployment. What happened to all these other people that left the workforce? Are they still gone? Have they come back? And the big answer to that is the way we measure the workforce, it comes from the labor department, which makes sense. And they do these surveys and they also look at taxes and so on. But the surveys are the real time stuff. They don't know from taxes until years later what actually happened. So they do these surveys. The labor force is anyone above the age of 16 that's not disabled. Okay, so I've seen lots of Bard was telling me it was the combination of everybody employed and unemployed. I'm like, no, that's the population. (laughs) That would mean that my children are in the workforce. That's not the case. So above the age of 16, and then you have the participation rate, which is then the percentage of the people in the workforce that either have a job or want a job, are actively looking for a job. And then you have the discouraged which means they want a job, but they've given up. And those numbers on the discouraged end are at very, very low numbers now. They are at lowest that we've seen in a very long time. People are coming back into the workforce from the discouraged population. There are a lot of people in part-time work that would prefer not to be, but those numbers are coming down too. They would prefer to be full-time, they're part-time. So then you've got people that retired early. And the Wall Street Journal had a story on this the same day the Labor Department let this stuff out. The the Washington Post did a bunch of interviews with people who retired early and then got bored out of their mind and they went back to work. And we're seeing a lot of that. So the big question we had in the pandemic, are all these early retirees gone for good? And the answer seems to be in the majority of cases, no, they actually want to be doing something in the workforce. And the numbers we have now, as far as the size of the workforce, are significantly higher. The actively working actual workforce, they're significantly higher than they were pre-pandemic. And the participation rate is coming up as well. So the participation rate is still lower than it was pre-pandemic, but because there's more people in the workforce, we have more people employed. And I know that's a lot of variables to throw in to say what in the world. There's The people that want to work, more of them are working. Um, there are even more people in the workforce. So you wanted to add something. I had a question a little while back from a client about if, if you have 64% or 62% or whatever of eligible people for the workforce actually in the workforce, isn't that other 30 some percent just a bunch of people who are on welfare and goofing off? And the answer is no. Absolutely Interesting. Not. <laughs> interestingly enough, the person who asked me this is a member of a couple, both of whom are retired military officers. They're, 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 old, they're in the age range where they should be in the workforce, but they're not working because they have plenty of income. And one, one of the, the biggest thing- contributors... <laughs> contributors to the word that that 30 some percent of the workforce i think the single biggest contributor is people who have retired before 65 because they have a good retirement system like right. government employees uh military retirees 
teachers, police officers. That's the single biggest component. The second <laughs> largest piece of that 30-some percent, by the way, is stay-at-home spouses who are taking care of kids. The number of people who are, quote, on welfare or men living with their girlfriend who's on welfare or whatever is a very, very, very tiny, tiny percentage of the people who are eligible to be in the workforce but are not working. It's very tiny. It's it's insignificant when you compare it, for example, to the military retirees. So it, it isn't, we've really cracked down a lot over the last few decades on welfare and on giving people money who should be working or not working. And I realize that one of the things that the, the Republicans in Congress are saying they'll let the country default if they don't get is a mandate for people who are receiving, let's say, aid to dependent children or, or SNAP program, which is food for families that have young children, that if they're not working, they don't get it. Um, I really, yeah. the problem with that is, it, it is a big problem. If you've got kids and you need to put them in daycare to work, to get food for the kids, and the daycare is costing you more than you're being paid at work, what do you do? Uh, this is one of the things, this is a, something that confronts a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are on, receive food or assistance from the government because they have small children at home who are in fact working, but don't appear to be working because they're taking the money as cash. So they don't, they're not in the position where they have to pay out more money to go to work than they're getting paid at work. That is, an, that is a big problem. It's an ongoing problem. And if you want to crack down on it a little harder and make them go to work, what you're going to wind up with is a bunch of hungry kids. Yeah. And to, to kind of address, there was a significant problem with welfare in the 1980s. Yes. Um, and essentially, it was replaced with the earned income tax credit. So that, we, and that is exactly what it is. It's, it's an earned income credit for low income people that still aren't quite making enough. So we have a poverty level and we have these metrics that say, if you're not making this much, but you're working, you can have this earned income tax credit. And uh, we're coming up close to the end of the hour. Hopefully we answered that question. Um, and the, the last part of this is that the, he said, supply chain and rise of fuel, mostly causing the majority of inflation. What we're seeing right now, month to month, is very, very low inflation. And yes, fuel is one of the major components almost always in inflation. Because even if you take energy as a component out of the index, the other prices are affected by shipping them. It costs more to get things from one place to another when energy is more expensive. I know we're about out of time, but suffice to say, there have been a couple of good studies that come out recently that say the margins that corporations are earning right now, the difference between what they pay for something and what they sell it to you for are record highs. That's one of the biggest contributors to inflation right now. Right. Uh, they're charging more for their products to keep up with inflation. This took place in, on a delay from when the inflation occurred. So we're beginning to see that come. But the earnings are nice. <laughs> uh, talking about inflation and the sources thereof. And you brought up that there are these different uh, ways of measuring that looks like the margins, the profit margins of the big publicly traded companies, which are sitting at really high numbers right now, are a big chunk of the ongoing month-to-month -month inflation. And I said at the end of the last hour that month-to-month -month inflation has come way, 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 way down. It's still positive, which means it's still inflating, but not at that rate that we saw last year. And you said that there are several publications that are talking about 
the margins on these U.S. corporations being a big chunk of that. Well, what is that? Where does that margin come from? Well, they raised the prices on their goods because they had to eat the difference last year when inflation was going up. They didn't change their prices in time, so it affected their earnings. Now they've raised prices and they're like, well, let's raise it enough so that we don't have to keep raising the prices. So let's just raise it to a good number. And they projected a level that's above what actually happened. So prices went up a little faster than they should have. But the good news is that most of these companies did it in like a one-time interval. They didn't put a floating rate on their prices, which is a good thing because that's when you start getting ingrained inflation where it's built into the system. Uh, as long as they're doing it one-offs like this where you see a big burst in the margins going way, way up. The other part that I said, and I think this is the most important piece to take out of that, we're talking about profit margins being up at U.S. corporations when inflation hit. A profit margin is the percent of profit that you make. So if you're making a, if you spend $10 and you make $5 out of that, you got a 50% margin. If you spend $15 and you get a 50% margin, you got seven and a half. So even when those dollars inflate, the profit percentage, that margin, is doesn't care about inflation. It means your profits are up, period. I have been asked, and I'm sure you have, where do I go to hedge against inflation? And my answer has always been the case, profitable, owning profitable companies because they change their prices with inflation. They want to maintain their profit margin. Uh, I'm sure you have more to add on that, but that's, that is my statement. Gold is not shown consistently to be... <laughs> correlated in any way with inflation it sometimes goes against it and sometimes goes the other direction right now gold is up and has risen nicely but it rose not because of inflation but basically because russia has been buying a lot of gold yeah because they're trying and to get they don't have dollars anymore they're, they're, they're trying to de-link from the dollar so they're willing to pay gold for things that they buy because we won't let them spend dollars and because Russia and, to a lesser degree, China are buying gold, the price of it has gone up. But they're going to, at some at some point, stop buying gold because then they run out of... They're buying the gold, by the way, with dollars. And they don't have very many of them. And once they no longer are buying the gold and somebody is selling it, and they will be selling it at that point for things that they need, gold prices will probably come back down again rather nicely. Uh, gold is largely unpredictable in this world. It, it it may go up and it may go down and it may go up or down a lot at various times. There were some times in the past few decades when gold has plunged dramatically and there's no easy way to see in advance when that's going to happen. Basically, there are places in the world right now, India, China, and Russia are the biggest ones, where gold is used as a store of value. And when hard times come, when you need your gold to rise because the stock market is down or whatever, that is when they will be selling gold and the price will go down. Hungary so and gold, Turkey, Turkey gold, are yeah. both buying gold hand over fist as well. Not the governments, the people of Turkey. Turkey had a hundred and extra, more than 100% inflation last year. Uh, and their rate has not abated. We talked about this at the time that... that their president got rid of three, the equivalent of our secretary of treasuries, went through three of them until he found one that was willing to lower interest rates instead of raise interest rates to fight inflation. And the results are pretty clear. <laughs> you lower interest rates to fight inflation and you get runaway inflation. Um, yep. 
we said that at the time and we were like kind of tongue in cheek. Well, let's see what happens this time. It's not ever been tried before. Well, yeah, it has many, many times in the past. And no matter how many times it's tried, it tends to have the same outcome, runaway inflation. So the the last part, we talked about profit margins and, and being a good hedge against inflation. But the fact that this questioner is still, Marty's saying, uh, what is the majority cause of inflation? What's going on with inflation right now? We've talked about this a bit in the newsletter. Inflation has been tamed drastically here. It's still running double digits in the UK, and obviously it's triple digits in Turkey. And there's some other places that are experiencing that as well. The ruble's not doing well. Um, the, the whole kind of picture here, what is inflation from? And there's not an easy answer to that. I wish there was. But if you take components that influence everything else, like if the banking system becomes more expensive, then money becomes more valuable. So having the banking system be inexpensive causes inflation. Lowering interest rates causes runaway inflation. So that's one component. We had low interest rate for a long time. Why didn't we have runaway inflation back then? Can you give me an answer to that? This is your your valley work. You've got lots of things to say we, on the subject. We had a we had an economy that was in balance and we had a strong deflationary force in that economy. The deflationary forces, and, and we all saw it happen, things that were manufactured in the United States and people were being paid a relatively high wage to manufacture them, a lot of that manufacturing moved to China, where you could manufacture something for a fraction of what it costs to do so in the United States. That ongoing offshoring caused downward pressure on prices, because if, if you're making widgets and three other companies are making widgets and you're the first one to open up a plant in China, and you can now make widgets for half the price that the uh, widgets are made in the United States. And you come in wait, wait a minute. lowering are you saying, price below them. Are you saying widgets or witches? Could be either one. Well, nice. It's occult, Wid- occult manufacturing. Witches are being manufactured. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Widgets is actually what I'm saying. Okay. And as a result, there was this race downward in prices, which kept inflation at virtually zero. Now, there's things you couldn't go down on for prices. That's like nobody in China is going to come and fix the plumbing in my house. So we were paying more for that, more for services, less for goods. And inflation stayed near zero. And that really is not a good place to be. China's, if you want the single, I think the single biggest influencer to the run on inflation we had last year was China's lockdown. Yeah. And there was a shortage of goods. The price of goods went up. Uh, then when the goods came back, people turned from buying goods to coming off our semi-lockdown and Europe's semi-lockdown and go back buying services. Going so back to surges. restaurants and so on. Right. And when they went back to buying services, the services like restaurants had laid a lot of people off. So they had to hire people and other people had already gotten jobs somewhere else. So they had to offer and, more money for the people to come back. Which means their prices had to go up. I know it's really popular to blame. Now, if you're a Republican, you blame the one Democrat stimulus bill. If you're a Democrat, you blame the two Republican stimulus bills for causing inflation. No, no, no. They did not in any way cause inflation. Wait, wait. You you got that off there. Because if you're, yeah, if you're a Republican, you blame the three Democrat bills, stimulus bills. And if you're a Democrat, you blame the three Republican ones, even though two of them were Republican. You don't have to get your facts straight if you're politically motivated here. That's just the case. So the 
the point is that inflation is higher in Europe than it is here, and they didn't have a stimulus bill. Inflation is as high in Canada where they didn't have U.S. stimulus bill as it is here, and it's more 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 locked in than ours is. The Canadians are having a heck of a time getting their inflation down. Ours is coming down faster than theirs. So it had nothing to do with the stimulus bills. It had to do with the fact that the reason we had very, 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 very low inflation for uh, over a decade is because outsourcing to China. Yeah. When China stopped supplying goods, but the demand was still there, the price went up. It's the laws of supply and demand. That's It's that simple. That was the first bout of inflation. And the second one was services because we weren't spending money on services for a while. The services laid off people. Like right now, it is hard to find a plumber. Before the pandemic, it was not. And the reality is a lot of people couldn't work as plumbers because that involved getting out and going places and they went to work doing something else. We're still going through the tidal effects of the pandemic, which is why, by the way, the traditional economic indicators seem to be totally screwed up because we're not in a traditional side business cycle. We're in a completely different place. Right. And this is a very nice segue into a couple of other things that I had to talk about. We're onshoring or nearshoring or bringing back manufacturing to the United States. What is onshoring, nearshoring? We were doing offshoring. Uh, we were sending it to China. Uh, now, a lot of that's coming back to the American continents. Um, mostly North America and Canada and Mexico are having a lot of manufacturing buildup. Uh, the, the, uh, Mexico, their federal release said that they have more than 400 major companies willing to spend large amounts of money to start manufacturing in Mexico in the last six months of 2022. These are people with money going to manufacture in Mexico. Those of you that have listened to us for very long know that I, I talk about different sources in China and what we're seeing there. And there's a, a China law blog that I have been uh, following for every time I say that. I have an arrested development moment where... Blah, blah, blah's law blog. Uh, and if you know what that is, <laughs> you can get a kick out of it. This is the China law blog. It's not blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> uh, but this, this law blog has been uh, supporting, it's an international law firm that has for years set up partnerships with manufacturers in uh, major industrial nations that want to form a partnership in China to manufacture things. And they basically have broken down the phases of Chinese development into three phases. The first phase was, hey, we have a thing that we're already manufacturing in the United States and we would like to manufacture it in China. So the intellectual property is pretty clear on that. This is an American product that is now being manufactured in China. Who owns the intellectual property? And that's relatively clear, even in China, where it's their intellectual property is famously not clear. The next phase was people 10 to 15 years later after this saying, I haven't manufactured this thing yet. I have a patent on it. 
in the United States, and I want to manufacture it. So they form a, a partnership with a company in China that's going to manufacture it. But because it's never been manufactured before, the item has to be modified to make it easier to manufacture. And this is just part of the process. You invent something, and you're not inventing it to make it easy to make. You're inventing it to do the thing that you have figured out you can do. So you have to work with the manufacturing company so that it can manu be manufactured cheaply and with some degree of quality. So this is the beginning of the gray area. Who owns the intellectual property? You've invented it. You have the patent. But now you're collaborating with a manufacturer in China who's altering your design. That means that they own part of it now. And in China, it means they own it. So unless there's contracts in place, you don't know who owns the property. And then the next layer on that was an item that's invented in China, that's manufactured in China, that someone in the United States put their, puts their logo on. If that company, and there's a lot of them these days, if that American company, which took a Chinese product that may have been based on somebody else's intellectual property that left that manufacturer. So that second phase that I was telling you about, they say, I own this, we say, we own this, we're taking this to Vietnam. Well, the people in China say, well, we're going to keep making it because we own it. So then an American company goes, oh, I want to have that product made. They check in China, oh, yeah, the property is owned by this Chinese manufacturer. Let's put our logo on it and start selling it. Well, now if you want to move your manufacturer from China and you say, I'm going to go to Vietnam, you're liable for lawsuits from the Chinese company in Chinese courts. So these, this is the complications that we've seen. The looseness of intellectual property over there has led to lawsuits in China, and you could be banned from doing business in China. One of the things that's happened over a long period of time, long period being the last three years, with the big manufacturers, Samsung and so on, is that they're changing what's being manufactured in China. Before, they'd have the whole phone made there, and now they're having specific parts of the phone made there, and they've moved the phone manufacturing to Vietnam or to Thailand or Turkey or any number of other places. When they do that, so long as they're giving the manufacturer in China another job, they don't get sued. But as soon as they shut down production in China, lawsuits start going. The Chinese say, hey, we had a big part in manufacturing that product and creating that product, and it's a murky area. Having said all of that, it's making companies leave faster, not slowing down the move. And what this law blog is saying is you've got to get the contracts in place before the manufacturer knows you're leaving to clarify who owns what. Because who owns the dye, the, the stamp that's used to press out your plastic thing that you invented? Well, you invented the plastic thing, but you didn't make the stamp. That was the manufacturer. They used your product, but they made an inverse of it. So they own the inverse of your product because it's being used to stamp. You don't have a patent on the inverse of your product. <laughs> so this is something that is accelerating companies' exits from China. The people that are moving to China are doing it more like McDonald's or Starbucks or Tesla, which is they're moving to China to sell to their consumers rather than to manufacture something. 
And that's a really big sea change, and that's directly related to the pandemic and the trade war that led into it. Trade war is still going, by the way. It has not been resolved under Trump or Biden. Biden has doubled down in certain areas and loosened up in others, and it doesn't get any headlines when it occurs. It used to be talk of the town everywhere. It's trade war and so on. It's just disappeared, and we've got an ongoing one. Um, there. That was that was a segue from a subject we were talking on, and I thought it was important. What's going on in Mexico? What's happening in the United States? Manufacturing is getting much faster to market. And you manufacture in China, it takes two weeks to six weeks to get here. You manufacture in Mexico, it might take three hours to get here. So, yeah, depending on the condition at the border at the time. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at? 
254-947-1111. You can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. Or you can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.
Yeah. Hey, um, something we didn't mention in the newsletter just wasn't room, but something else came out. The ISM uh, non-manufacturing survey. Uh, what is that? It's a PMI, which doesn't tell you anything. Basically, the purchasing manager survey conducted by the Institute for Supply Management in the non-manufacturing sector of our economy, which is the biggest part of our economy, rose from 51.2 to 51.9. No, what does that mean? Anything above 50 is expansion. And this is the fourth month in a row that the services side, the non-manufacturing side of our economy has had a purchasing manager's index above 50 growing. It's as if it hit kind of a mini downside at the end of last year and has been growing ever since. This is part of what we're looking at right now when we say what recession, uh, what recession is coming. Uh, there may be technically a recession coming in the last part of the year. Right now, Moody's is saying there'll probably be one quarter with either nearly flat or maybe slightly negative GDP, probably the third quarter. The second quarter they're now saying is maybe 0.5% per year. In other words, what we see is the total economy slowing down to below trend growth, but not shrinking. And then the an interesting thing that came out in the in the jobs report that was published on Friday from the Labor Department is that the manufacturing sector where things where the growth rate has been slowing is now below 50. So it looks like we got contraction in the manufacturing sector, but manufacturers are still hiring new workers. Now, why are they doing that? I mean, if, if, you, if business is going down traditionally, what happens? We slide into, we're sliding towards a recession. Business activity is down. Uh, orders are down. They start laying people off. Instead of laying people off, they are hiring people. Why would they do that? Because they're looking at their customers who are telling them what orders they're planning over the next year or so. And they see a growth spurt coming in a few months. When you hire somebody, it takes three to six months for them to become protect productive. So there is, again, every indication that we are seeing right now in what we consider to be the reliable uh, foundational economic principles and, 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 and asset, know, assets, asset classes in the United States says there is more growth coming in the next year, yeah. not a recession. Here is another piece to that. Productivity numbers are negative. What does that mean? Well, that means that we're retreating. We're not able to build as many things in the same number of hours. What is that about? That sounds really negative. It is. It's negative. It makes it harder to build things. It makes it longer to get things done. So what's causing it? Um, and this is one of those oddities. It's oddities abound these days. During the pandemic, Working from home increased productivity. Why? Well, there's a lot of studies that have been done on it. There was kind of an emergency feel to it in the workforce. I got to get this done. I've got to. I got to make sure that I do this the right way when I'm doing this. And and over time, so that increased productivity fairly drastically. It was an amazing shift, and everybody was like, "This doesn't make any sense." They're working from home and they're doing more work, and this is amazing. And that lasted for a while, and then. People working from home, productivity rates started dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. So now they're lower than they were pre-pandemic. Working from home is now not as productive. Why? It's the same people working in relatively the same conditions, except when they started, there was a, we got to do this. This is weird. We all have to make adjustments. We all have to. And now it's a, I don't want to go to work. 
I like sitting at home in my pajamas and the CEOs that you're hearing again and again saying, hey, we're moving from uh, you're in the office one day a week to three days a week because people aren't doing their work. They're not answering emails. They're not showing up for Zoom meetings. They're what's going on here. And this is normal in a big shift, particularly when there's been a lot of hiring. So let's put this on another parallel. Say you're manufacturing. So this isn't something you can do from home. And manufacturing productivity has dropped too. But you just said we're hiring and manufacturing. So any place you've ever worked, listener, who do you get to train the new employees? Well, you generally get the best, the people that know the best how to do what you're doing to train them. Those are the most productive employees. And you take them off the work line to work at quarter speed or less to try to teach a new person how to do it or multiple new people how to do it. And those new people mess things up. I've got two kids and I tell you this, it's a lot easier and faster for me to clear the table than to get them to do it. But I still get them to do it because I didn't get to where I am clearing the table by not clearing tables. So you take the most effective people And you put them in charge of the least effective people and you get a drop in productivity. That lasts until these people get trained. And in manufacturing, that's three to six months. We've had a big spike in hiring. We're seeing the corresponding drop drop in productivity. Three to six months from now, expect productivity to go up drastically because that's the way this works. And otherwise, you're going to see some layoffs in manufacturing because if they can't learn to work, they're not going to get paid. Uh, That's just That's just the way it works. Most people want to keep their job and are willing to work for it. And there's a lot of pushback about going back to the office. But the major trend that we're seeing is that it will occur. The places where it's not occurring and productivity still remains high is mostly in programming, in software development. Because the coordination there, these are a bunch of people, and I I represent these people well, who are not exactly socially apt. They they don't do well in meetings. They do a lot better using instant messenger to tell each other what they need to be working on or to share their screens with each other rather than going to a corporate board meeting and looking at printouts or a or, or a, a, a screen a slideshow of what they should be doing. I've about beat that one to death. So do you have something else you would like to talk about? Oh yeah, there's something there's something Something that a lot of people don't understand about banks. Banks, to a large degree, operate on faith. Oh, yeah. And what happens is, as soon as the depositors lose faith in the bank, the bank's dead. Because they, if, if every, everybody has this mental set that comes out of It's a Wonderful Life, where the people were making a run on the savings and loan to get their cash out in the 1930s, then if you have $100,000 in a bank, they've got dollar bills or whatever in the vault, and they can just give it to you. Well, what happens is, let's just say that you had a CD that you opened up, uh, you had a five-year CD yet, and you're real proud of the fact that your five C- five-year CD is paying you two and a half percent when you opened it. And it's still there at the bank, and it's still paying two and a half percent a year. And then the bank is loaning out money at six or seven percent for car loans, and they keep the difference. That's how banks make money. But if you go liquidate your CD, they can't go liquidate $100,000 worth of car loans. I say they can, but it doesn't work real well um, to give you money. So they have to have cash from someplace. And if all the depositors 
with their CDs and savings accounts and checking accounts show up and want their money or even a large percentage of them, more than about 10%, the bank simply isn't going to have enough money in on hand, cash on hand to pay them back. This is why the federal, one of the reasons the Federal Reserve exists. And if a bunch of people show up and say, I want my cash, they say, well, we don't have that much cash on hand right now. Come back tomorrow. Then we get a panic, which is, of course, why the Fed Now program is opening up immediately. The, the issue is all banks operate on faith. Back in the early, 19, early 1990s in Central Texas here, we had bank runs. We had banks that rumor was going that the bank was failing because they had bad, bad real estate loans, commercial real estate loans. And people would rush to the bank to get their money out. I remember there was a line that wrapped around the block in Copper's Cove for some bank that was going into there. And of course, the banks couldn't provide the money. Uh the Federal Reserve literally, on a couple of occasions, has sent out truck, 18-wheeler trailer trucks full of cash. Yeah, there was a great example of that. Y2K, the Y2K bug. Uh, the year 2000 is coming along. The bank code is going to break everything, and the banks are going to not have any money. Well, the Federal Reserve sent out a massive amount of cash that they had the Treasury Mint print up just so that they had cash on hand at the banks to represent a larger portion of their deposits so that people could be given money if there was a run on the bank. That's what the Federal Reserve is for. Yeah, and they, it's important to recognize when you pool your money somewhere with other people's money for use by an institution, it is really important that you understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, what backs that institution, and what risks, if any, your money have, has, have, whatever. Oh, man, that's a tense question you've got there. I, yeah, lots of tenses in that one. I, and, and I think people generally don't do that. They simply say, oh, okay, it's guaranteed. I'll put the money in there and I'll get a better interest rate than I'll get somewhere else. Every once in a while, once or twice a generation, that blows up. And we're in one of those positions now where it is starting to blow up a little bit. The Fed is doing some things to put banks in a position where they can have instant liquidity. But look around at every place else that you're that you have pooled your money with other people, given it to an institution, not in that order, you give it to the institution, they pool the money, and then ask yourself the question, and this is important at this point in time, it hasn't been important for many, many years, but it is important right now. What happens if that corporation where you have your money fails? It's critical that you ask that question. Why is it critical? Because there are a lot of accounts where if it fails, you're an unsecured creditor. And then there are other accounts, other types of accounts that look very similar, where you're either protected under something called like the Investment Company Act of 1940 or FDIC or those some are, form of federal those, insurance backing. Those are very different things. As a side note, we're not trying to say that the investment company of 1940 is equivalent to the FDIC. No. They're but just different know, different protection methods. It's, it's important to know what protection methods are there, if any, and ask that question. People generally do not ask the question, I have my money at wherever. What happens if wherever fails? What happens to my money? A lot of people although not everyone, are familiar with FDIC at the bank, up to 250000 per account, and what is an account, and how many $250,000 accounts you can have. Banks will talk to you about that readily. They are far less familiar with other aspects, and they become suddenly very familiar with it when something like uh, Lehman Brothers fails, or uh, some other company that they thought that where they thought their money was safe fails or an insurance company fails. They suddenly get a quick education. And it's important to recognize that it is a caveat emptor 
environment where it is up to you to know what happens to your money if the institution where you have it deposited or saved fail. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you probably ought to find someplace where you are comfortable. Yeah. And kind of give us a timeline on the banking crisis, the, the most recent one. And it, I'm not sure I would call it a banking crisis, except it was a big enough event that the Federal Reserve acted like it was a crisis. We'll call it a crisis. SVB failed. Why did they fail? Well, they didn't have enough liquidity to meet their depositors' demand. Um, First Republic started to fail and was failing in slow motion. Its ultimate failure wasn't a run on the bank. Not like SVB. It was a sale of its stock so that the shareholders lost faith in the executives of the bank. That's a different kind of crisis now. Who's at risk in the first crisis is the depositors. They might not get their money. FDIC came in and covered it 100%. The Federal Reserve opened up these different programs to make sure that banks had cash on hand in the event that they had a run on the bank. So now it was the shareholders' turn to look at the executives of the banks and saying, wait a minute, you were doing just what caused that other bank over there to fail. We don't have trust in you anymore. So the whole banking sector, everybody that's owning stocks and banks right now realizes the whole banking sector dropped. Why? Well, because everybody said, whoa, banking's scary. But specifically, places like First Republic, the shareholders said, not only is this scary, you guys were doing exactly the same thing they were, and they failed. So the crisis is now on the shareholders, the owners of the bank, and they lost a lot of money in both of these instances. The FDIC insurance did not cover shareholders of the bank they lost their shirts. <laughs> you, this is not unique to the United States. Um, when which which bank failed in Switzerland? Uh, Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse failed. They had bonds outstanding as well as stocks. And when they failed, there was an entire set of bondholders. They're called subordinates. Who they simply said, "Sorry, you're not getting any money back. You've lost all the money you loaned." to the bank. And they're suing now. But the question is whether they're going to get anything. I don't know, because they're right. basically fighting the government. They're fighting their own government and it's not working real yeah. well. What what but, happens when the FDIC takes over? There's probably going to be lawsuits at SVB. This happened mm -hmm. back when um, uh, Countrywide was purchased during the global financial crisis. There's a lot of assets at that bank. But it was purchased on a fire sale. The FDIC said to its little group of bankers, which one of you wants to give a bid on this bank? And in the case of SVB, the bid was nickel on the dollar, and it was the highest bid. So the, the FDIC said, it's yours. Well, they just bought a bunch of assets. And in bankruptcy, what's hopefully going to happen is the shareholders are going to try to sue the purchasing company to say that contract needs to be upheld for the loans that we gave, for the pre preferred stock that wasn't um, converted to common stock. So the complexities start coming out in little lawsuits. This is generally done in a bankruptcy. But if you look back at, at Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they made out like bandits in the great global financial crisis because they were able to step in and buy these assets cheaply, extremely cheaply. Yeah, they came with a lot of liabilities, like 
who's getting foreclosed on and who's not and all of that. But when you're buying at that steep a discount and you have enough cash on hand to make everybody whole for a while, you make a lot of money on that deal. And that's been the case. First Republic is now being looked at. It's being shut up by the regulators and being the assets have to be handled. So what happens to your money in the event that your bank, your bank um, still has assets, but they're shut down because their shareholders have removed the executives and their, and their uh, share price has gone to zero. Well, the FDIC steps in and says, we're covering this. Whatever bank comes to buy it has to honor your deposit and it has to be same day. So that's one of the hard things. And there's some articles in the different financial press over the last several weeks talking about the stable of bank purchasers. The FDIC keeps a group of banks that it goes to in an auction kind of format saying, hey, this bank is failing. You guys, this is our opening bid. Who wants to bid on it? And what's more, sometimes they make a brand new bank and they've got to grab an executive that's not at a bank right now. And they have to have a stable of people that are willing to step into that position. A lot of bank presidents, when they retire will put their name on that list because it's generally a pretty lucrative position to try to unravel this stuff and the underlying assets are worth a lot more than the short-term obligations. So they wind up making a lot of money, but there's not many of them right now. So this is lots of complexity here, but it's fascinating when you start digging in to say, what are the checks and balances? And then that was a pun on banking. Did you see what I did? Checks and balances. See that right there? <laughs> I'm a dad. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, We are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the Personal Wealth Coach being our title. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So... We've been doing this program here uh, on this st- in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education. 
which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.